Welcome to the Books Talk podcast from Lincoln City Libraries. This program was recorded at the Bethany Branch Library on April 1st, 2016. Scott from Bennett Martin Public Library discusses a grab bag of books. Since it is 1035, I suppose we can go ahead and get started here. Today is April 1st, and when they first put out the schedule of uh, Bethany and Gear Book Talks and said, who would like to take these dates, I was like, ooh, April 1st, I can talk about books that are foolish or, or that, that trick you, that have a, a twist ending or something like that. Um, and that was my plan all along. Um, and then I discovered like two weeks ago, I had no time to read any of those kinds of things. So April Fool's, you get a grab bag from Scott instead of, <laughs> instead of books about foolishness. Maybe next year. Maybe next year. So what I've got is essentially the, the best of the things that I've read um, since the last time I joined you. Uh, so stuff that I read within the last five to six months, essentially. Um, and it's a mixture of fiction, nonfiction. And uh, one of the dangers of working at the checkout desk at any library is you, you basically get to see all the books everybody else is returning. And even though I don't have kids, some picture books nowadays... You want some? <laughs> no, thank you. Uh, some picture books nowadays are spectacular. They're just gorgeous. And so there's even a handful of picture books at the end of my list, which if I have time, I'll save those for the very last, that really struck my fancy in terms of their beauty and their storytelling and things like that. So I'm not actually going to try to directly follow what you see on the list here in order um, because I've got a bag full of books and I'm just going to grab stuff at the top and work my way down to the bottom. So bear with me. Now I will say I am a member not only of the library's Just Desserts group and we always pick titles that the library does own for that because after all it's a library book group and we want to encourage people to check out library books. But I'm also a member of a science fiction fantasy book group um, and we don't have that criteria because it's not a library sponsored thing so some of the sci-fi fantasy things that I have here are things that are not owned by the library and I'll mention that specifically as I get to them but uh, we do encourage anybody that um, is intrigued by a title uh, that you can use our interlibrary loan service for that mere small fee of $2.50 to get any item that the libraries do not own themselves so keep that in mind. I went out and bought the world as a word for forest. Yes. Since last time you were here I went and got myself a used copy. Did you like it? I haven't read it yet. Okay. I decided I must own it. Okay. It, 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 it was <laughs> Since a, the library doesn't, somebody has to. It was a good book. So. <laughs> uh, starting at the top of my stack, uh, I have a fiction titled The Chrysalids by John Wyndham. This is not a library book, unfortunately, but uh, my book group read it. And when, when we do our book group, our science fiction book group, at the end of our discussion, after everybody's read the same book and we talk about it, uh, we all grade the book on a 1 to 10 scale, 10 being the best score you can give it and, and 1 being the worst score you can give it. And this uniformly got about an 8 um, overall from our group. So fair, fairly strong uh, positive feelings about this. This is a classic. I don't know if you, anybody recognizes the name John Wyndham. He's a British author um, and the things that he's probably best known for, the, the Chrysalids is considered one of his two or three masterworks, but the thing he's probably best known for is uh, The Triffids. Uh, so you may be familiar with the British movie about plants, alien plants coming oh. to life and, and influence pe- influencing people in England. In The Chrysalids, it is a far future novel uh, set in um, a community in Canada, Canada, actually, even though he's a British author. After a post-apocalyptic war has taken place in which humanity has nearly destroyed itself and the remnants have sort of uh, settled into uh, an agrarian culture and any 
any concept of making use of technology is like evil in their society because uh, even though it's been thousands of years since humanity nearly killed itself off, uh, there's enough knowledge of what it was, the weapons of mass destruction that killed us all off, uh, that um, any thought of using any form of technology um, is verboten. And also, uh, a strict religious fundamentalism has, has come up, um, and because of all the radiation um, in the planet, because of the nuclear fallout that um, has occurred, in the community of this particular story, uh, the social leaders do not uh, approve of any mutations that occur. So when a birth occurs, either an animal, a farm animal, or a human, uh, the new, newly born thing has to be evaluated to make sure that it doesn't have an extra toe or mismatched eye color or anything like that, and the story basically is all about a, a sort of an underground group uh, that has developed uh, non-apparent mutations. They have ab developed the ability to communicate tep telepathically, and so there's this small group of people in a number of different communities that are talking to each other through their heads, and the rest, and, and basically trying to hide, e hide, hide each other and hide the fact that they have these abilities because they... That's the way they grew up. They feel like they're normal, but they can see that the society at large would uh, ostracize them, um, and it, it becomes uh, a fight for life when the people that don't have powers suddenly discover that the people that do have powers have them, and it becomes a run through uh, the countryside trying to hide from people. So, all of that little book. All of that. <laughs> uh, it, it's a fascinating little exploration. Yeah. It's, it's really actually kind of short, um, and uh, it is a, a wonderful um, uh, look at a classic of the science fiction literature. This was published back in like the 1960s approximately. So anyway, I'll pass that one around. If you want to take a look at the description in more detail, there, there's a lot of really classic works dealing with telepathy. Sometimes it's out and and, and um, everybody knows about it and a lot of times it's hidden because of the potential dangers and risks of it. So. Alright, the next one also is a fiction title. Um, I had discovered this one uh, at Barnes & Noble um, and thought um, it looked really cool. Bought it um, discovered that there were two books in the series, um, bought the second one after having finished this first one and enjoyed it so much, um, and then discovered, as I looked at the copyright dates, that these were actually published almost 20 years ago, and a new publisher had bought the rights to republish them and put them in brand new packaging. They have a totally different look than when they originally came out, and before realizing the copyright date issue, I had recommended them as purchases to the library saying, hey, these brand new books um, look really cool at Barnes & Noble, and, and I got a message back saying, well, we did have one of those 20 years ago in the collection, but yeah, we can get it again, sure. So <laughs> both of these do actually exist in the library's collection. This is my personal copy, so you can't have it, but if you do um, have any interest in it, you can pursue it through the library. These are a pair of mysteries uh, by Michael Curland. The name of the series is the Alexander Brass Mysteries. They are set in the 1930s, and the reason I really enjoy them is the sense of place, the sense of time is really, really strong in these. Alexander Brass is a newspaper columnist. Uh, it's the Great Depression era. Um, however, um, newspapers um, seem to have survived the financial uh, falls, um, and, and he is a columnist. He's not a reporter, but his column is like kind of the Walter Winchell. I mean, he ba basically, he has a lot of influence in the columns that he writes, and primarily, um, Alexander Brass writes columns 
terms about society and and what's ha- what's happening with the big wigs and and who, what the latest starlets are doing and stuff like that. But he really likes to do in depth explorations of things where he can crack open a story and and un- unveil corruption and things like that. This particular novel, which is Too Soon Dead, the other one in the series, which I don't have on here, is The Girls in the High Heeled Shoes. This particular one, uh, 1935, uh, basically a tipster shows up with a, a package um, of nudie photos um, uh, compromising um, a whole bunch of important city officials who are have their, had their photos taken. And uh, he wants Alexander Brass, the columnist, to hold on to these photos because he thinks he's in danger. He won't explain who took the photos, where they were taken. He just wants Brass to hold on to them while he does a little bit more digging. Um, and he thinks that then uh, once he's got a little bit more information that he can pass on to Brass that it would be a great story. Well, the guy ends up dead. Brass has a, a wall safe with very uh, uh, curious photos, and he and his leg man, who is basically one of his researchers for his columns, uh, begin to investigate who would have taken all these photos. They can track them down sort of by the prominent citizens that are in the photos, but they don't want to let these prominent citizens know that their photos were taken because the way the photos were taken makes it very obvious that it was a hidden camera, and they don't want to make it give the impression that they're trying to blackmail anybody, but they would like to find out who it is that killed the guy that had the photos and um, see if they can uncover what the plan was because none of these people apparently have been blackmailed by anybody, and yet here we have... 30 or 20 or 30 photos that it were taken so they start investigating the backgrounds of all these prominent New York um, citizens um, and it turns into a, a, a very dicey uh, murder mystery slash adventure novel so uh, if you're looking for something if you like the 1930s music and um, bubbly New York uh, scene um, that you might have seen in um, movies and television shows uh, this really captured that sense of, of style very well and, and it's a pretty solid mystery it's not like it plays fast and loose with with its um, characters and, and, and its clues or anything like that. It's not the best mystery I've read, but I enjoyed it for the style that it told its story in. So, two novels by Michael Curland in the Alexander Brass Mystery Which Series. Which one should be read first? Uh, there's definite that? character progression. So, you want to read, you wanna read Too Soon Too Soon Dead is the first one, and the other one is the second. And sadly, even though those were published in like 94, 95 approximately, uh, he never wrote any additional ones. He's written many, many other novels. He's also an anthologist. He he edits a lot of collections of other people's short stories and puts them together in like thematic packages and things like that. But these are the only two that he's written in that series. And I keep hoping now that this new publisher has put out brand new editions um, that maybe that will inspire him to go back and revisit that series after a 20-year gap. So he, he writes novels that aren't mysteries? Mostly what he writes is mysteries and then the anthologies oh, that he edits. Just not that series. Just not that okay. series, yes. And then most of the other ones tend to be standalone. Uh, he has also put out a couple of Sherlock Holmes anthologies where other people wrote the stories and he sort of packaged the whole thing together. This is another one where the library owns it, but this is my personal copy. Uh, it is Unbound by Jim C. Hines. Um, it is a sci-fi fantasy. Uh, I'll give you a brief description and then just pass it around. Um, but first of all, I will say that I've actually met Jim Hines. Uh, there is a local science fiction convention that takes place in April, May each year called Constellation. It's in its seventh year this year. Um, and each year they have a single 
author as their primary guest, and Jim C. Hines was their author back in their second or third year, and he was just a delight. He was a wonderful um, uh, storyteller. Uh, he had lots of tales about the, the world of publishing. He had not actually started releasing the volumes in this particular series, which is called Magic Ex Libris, at the time of that convention. They came out subsequent to his appearance here in Lincoln. Um, mainly he was writing your standard stock fantasies with dwarves and elves and orcs and, and the kind of stuff you might see in Tolkien, but just with a little bit more sense of humor. This series, however, was absolutely fascinating. It started with The Libriomancer, um, was the title of the first one. Then there was a book called Codex Born. This is the third one, Unbound, and he has concluded the series with a fourth volume uh, just within the past few months. So it is a four books and out kind of series. It's not like it's a constantly ongoing, like so many fantasy series where it's just one book after another. This one is done in four books. The, the concept of the magic world in this particular one is that it is set in, a, in our world in a contemporary setting. Uh, the main character, Isaac, is a librarian in a small community in uh, Michigan, and his type of magic and the type of magic of the people that he associates with uh, is called Libriomancy. It's magic out of books. He and the other people who've studied like he has have the ability to take any book, and if they need something that appears in that book as a plot element, as an example, uh, say, Le Morte d'Arthur, the, the, the death of Arthur, the Camelot's Tales. If they're in a situation where they need Excalibur, all they have to do is open up a book big enough that they can reach in, and they can reach into the book and pull anything out of that book into the real world. Um, so they, they obviously can't bring a tank or an M15 or something like that because it's too big to fit through a, the pages of a book. But if it can fit with throughout the pages of a book, something small, a ring, a, a sword, a, a magic pistol or something like that, they can reach in. That is how the series starts, and things rapidly get more complicated for Isaac and, and the other people that he associates with because that's not the only type of magic in the world. That's just the type that they've mastered, and they quickly discover over the course of the, the series that there are other people and people with perhaps not as positive uh, ways of wanting to use magic in the world for people that actually want to dominate other people, and so it becomes this challenge as he and other people um, that are making use of magic in, in his world are starting to fight dark forces. So just like many other fantasy novels, you've got a battle of good versus evil. In this particular case, however, he, by the time of the third book, has been ostracized by his own people, and so he's sort of a rogue on his own and trying, with a few friends that still trust him, to, to accomplish the, the, the positive good things that need to be done so that uh, evil forces don't overwhelm the rest of the world. So it's set in a modern era and it's got a lot of goofy humor um, and if you're interested in sampling a contemporary fantasy um, I would start with Libriomancer. It's a really good series. By the time you get to the third volume things have gotten very layered and very complicated and in the fourth volume I... I bought the fourth book, and I just wanted to see if it was going to continue, and I read the last two pages, and no, it's not going to continue. The series ends. <clears throat> uh, I've got a trio of books for the next, four books for the next. Those of you who don't like science fiction, or rather don't specifically like Star Trek, will probably want to avoid my next book talk in September when I celebrate the 50th anniversary of Star Trek. Yay. Star Trek started on September 8th, 1966, and so obviously September 8th, 2016 will be the literal 50th anniversary, and that is my intent is to talk Star Trek-related things, and it might not just be novels and, and nonfiction, but it also might be things that were influenced by Star Trek. I mean, if you look at the technology that was created for the TV series, communicators that 
flip open and stuff like that. Good grief, who hasn't had a cell phone that you flipped open? I mean, good, there's also tricorders that can scan a person's body from five feet away and tell you what kind of disease they have. Well, those actually exist in our modern era, and in many ways we're inspired the, the technicians who created them for our real world were inspired by the way that they were done in the TV series. So there's a lot of things about Star Trek to talk about. Today, the books that I have, however, are biographies in nature because of the people who starred on Star Trek being very influential in my life. Leonard Nimoy passed away in February of last year. Several biographies have come out. Um, I've got two that were actually by him himself. The first one was a book that he put out back in the 1970s called I Am Not Spock. It was a sort of a knee-jerk reaction in the title to all the people who would run into him in airports and stores and things like that and call him Spock. And he was like, I've had a, a... rich and varied career, even though Star... I mean, this is 1970s, so... But, I mean, he'd been in lots of things, and nobody would acknowledge anything except Spock, so his knee-jerk reaction was, I'm not Spock. So he put out this biography, and it wasn't so much trashing the fans that liked him for Spock, it was just simply a look back at his own life and saying... There's a lot more to me than just simply these pointed ears um, and this split-finger salute. And so this book came out, and the title alone kind of alienated some fans by going, well... But he put but that picture on the cover. He did put that picture on the cover. There, there was a knee-jerk reaction on the fans' part saying, but that's what we love about you. <laughs> well, if you look at the book, it doesn't trash Star Trek. It doesn't trash Star Trek fans for thinking that. Uh, and so that was perhaps not his best choice of a title for a biography. And so 25 years later, when he put out a second biography, it was titled, I Am Spock. Because at that point, he had embraced the fact (laughs) that this was his defining role and that this was what he was most likely going to be remembered for um, by the majority of people who were going to remember him in any way. And so the second volume, which was in the mid-90s instead of the mid-70s, basically celebrates the fact that Spock opened up his life to so many other opportunities, things that he would not have had a chance to do if it hadn't been for the success that he had had in playing that one particular role. So it it is a love affair with the fact that he played Spock, um, but also is still another opportunity for him to point out the other things in his career that people might want to sample that perhaps they hadn't previously. Now, Leonard Nimoy, as a creator, is not just an actor. He was a director. He directed many films, um, including perhaps, you'll remember, Three Men and a Baby, Uh, was one of his big um, successes. He also is a photographer and a painter. Uh, He's had exhibits of his uh, photography and painting work up. Uh, He is a philanthropist. Um, If everybody remembers the um, observatory, the Griffith Observatory in Los Angeles, it it had fallen into bad times and really should have probably been closed down because it was in such poor condition. He and his wife gave the money to rehab that entire Griffith Observatory and make it functional again. So he, he basically walked the walk. If he talked about something that um, he believed in, something that he wanted to support, he was there with a hammer and nails helping to build something um, if it required that. These two um, um, autobiographies are fascinating, but the one that just came out, and I'll pass the two Nimoy ones around right now, but the one that just came out is a book by William Shatner his co-star from Star Trek, titled Leonard, My 50-Year Friendship with a Remarkable Man. 
Williams. Were they really friends? Well, yes. Uh, Shatner has this odd reputation. Yes, he um, does. Over, over decades, if you talk to many of his other Star Trek co-stars, of being this aloof presence who didn't acknowledge the contributions of George Takai and Walter Koenig and Michelle Nichols to the world of Star Trek, and that it was all him, basically. Well, Shatner is a bit of an egoist and doesn't really understand those attitudes but in more recent years and Shatner just celebrated his 85th birthday a week ago um, or a little over a week ago um, in more recent years he's coming to terms with the fact that there's alienation towards him and he's trying to mend fences and, and, and correct those things. He, in this book um, about his friendship with Nimoy it talks about the fact that when they were hired for this series they had very little to do with each other except for what they needed to do to act on the screen and if that had been it they probably never would have had any kind of relationship whatsoever. But when Star Trek ended after three years, um, and all the actors, I mean, the last episode they filmed, they weren't even sure that that was necessarily going to be the end. So it wasn't like they had a party to celebrate the final episode. They just sort of finished that production and went on with their lives. Shatner comments that when you're on a TV show, and he uses uh, Boston Legal as an example because he started on that one as well with James Spader, he considers James Spader a friend. Um, he, he thinks that if, if he were to call up James Spader and ask him for a favor or, or to ha do a guest appearance on something, Spader would probably do it at the drop of a hat because they like each other that much. But at the same time, they don't have the kind of relationship that is a close personal contact relationship. Uh, he says when you end a series... You have a rap party, you have a big cake to celebrate the final episode that you just filmed, and you all hug each other and say, we're going to stay in touch, and almost always, in 99% of the time, you never have anything to do with any of those people ever again. You don't go get, get together for barbecues and things like that on the weekends. You're, you're just done. You move on to your next job, which is your next acting role, and you form a new family with a new cast of characters that you're going to be friends with. That would have been the case with Star Trek, except that after Star Trek ended, it didn't end. It went into syndication and became a more successful series syndicated around the country in afternoons and weekends than it ever was on the network. And suddenly conventions started popping up um, in New York and Los Angeles, and the actors started getting invited to these things. And they started running into each other again after thinking that they were not going to have anything to do with each other. And he and Nimoy basically started doing all these Star Trek-related things after the series was done, an animated series was produced, and they all had to get together and record dialogue for that. And suddenly Paramount, who owned the rights, wanted to do movies. Actually, they wanted to do a, a, a second series, and they were in production to create a second series when Star Wars premiered, and everybody could see how popular a feature film, a blockbuster science fiction feature film would be. And so the, the, the company that was starting to produce, produce a second Star Trek series turned around and said, we don't want a series. We want you to do a movie because there's a lot of money in Star Trek or in, in science fiction movies. So they created Star Trek The Motion Picture, which led to a total of six films starring the original cast from the original Star Trek. And these guys just kept hanging out with each other in all these social events and getting to know each other. And when they started getting to know each other, they started to realize both Shatner and Nimoy came from similar backgrounds. Hard scrabble families in, in financial distress. Uh, both of them were raised Jewish, uh, which they hadn't been, really been aware of um, with each other. Uh, they both had a strong work ethic. They each took any job that came along. They came from an era in which if you're an actor, I mean, we think of Star Trek and, well, they're successful. They, they, they started in all these Star Trek things. Well, they were taking any job that, could, that was um, passed by them. They didn't turn anything down. And they both discovered that that was a similarity. They both enjoyed the stage. They had started in the stage and then moved to the more lucrative field of, of um, TV and, and motion pictures. 
they discovered that they were really far more alike than they were different. And even though Shatner had kind of treated everybody shabbily during the production of the TV series, because, I mean, he was trying to establish himself as a TV star and didn't really care whose toes he stepped on. And for Nimoy, after multiple failed attempts to break into TV and motion pictures, this was his first opportunity, so he's ticked off at Shatner because Shatner's not giving him the 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 room that he needs to try to turn this into a star vehicle and then of course Spock becomes the number one character on the show although all the <laughs> when they started getting fan mail ten times as much fan mail for Spock as any of the other actors and so Shatner's ticked at Nimoy for being the most popular character well all of this bubbles up to a relationship that then stretched to fifty years and they became the closest of personal friends I mean when Nimoy's son became a drug addict and Nimoy himself was an alcoholic an unacknowledged alcoholic during all the episodes of Star Trek and Mission Impossible that he was filming. He was drunk beyond belief in the evenings after he got done filming, and it's sad to think about that. But he finally recognized that he was killing himself and buckled down, and Shatner was one of the people that helped him get past that. And then Shatner gets into a relationship um, with with his second wife, who is an alcoholic as well, and... Nimoy stands by him, says, you want to think strongly about what you're doing, getting involved with somebody who has this addiction. Shatner nonetheless loves her, gets married, and Nimoy basically is his best friend dealing with his wife's addiction, and then when she dies in an accident in their swimming pool because she was drunk and went swimming and and couldn't couldn't breathe, uh, Nimoy is the one who's there propping him up. So really they became each other's best friends, and they had a bit of a tiff towards the end of Nimoy's life, and Shatner's greatest regret is that they had not solved that and he didn't he didn't even know what it was that he had done that annoyed Nimoy so that Nimoy wasn't speaking to him at the time of his passing. Um, Then on top of that you get the fact that Shatner was in Florida at a Red Cross charity event, uh, another uh, charity that Nimoy supported at the time of Nimoy's passing and because of the Jewish tradition of needing to be buried very quickly Shatner was not able to return for the funeral and he was he was just reamed by everybody on the internet for He's your co-star, he's your best friend, and you don't go to his funeral. And, and so this book is sort of his trying to explain how he's living by Nimoy's standards of living to the commitment that he had made to this charity. And it, it's really an exploration of friendship gained, friendship lost, and, and how you sometimes don't expect things that come and, and, and end up giving a benefit to your life. So, uh, I, this is just, an, Shatner is, is not the world's best author. He has ghostwriters that write stuff for him, but this really felt like personal recollections. This felt like him sitting there on a sofa giving you stories about the lives that he and Nimoy shared and how often they crossed over with each other, and it was just absolutely wonderful. If you're a Star Trek fan or even just a uh, fan of Leonard Nimoy as an actor, I highly recommend this one. This is my copy, but the library has multiple copies. On a lighter note, also on a Star Trek actor, George Takai has a couple of autobiographies out. Uh, this one is called Oh My, There Goes yes. the Internet. That's his catchphrase <laughs> if you're not familiar with it. Uh, and he is not really well-versed in the world of the Internet, or at least he wasn't before he got onto it, and decided he wanted to have a, a Twitter feed and a Facebook page and a, a website that he could share news about his career with his friends and fans. And what he ultimately started doing is, because he's got a goofy sense of humor, people would start 
start sharing goofy videos and websites that had something silly about them. And he, and, and he would look at all these things, and then he would share them to his followers. And because he's a TV star, he has lots of followers. And that just sort of started exploding. He shared so many funny things that those, those sites that he would share would suddenly become overwhelmed by visitors to their sites. And sometimes those sites would go down, they would crash because so many people were following George's link to them that uh, he, he, he basically has become sort of a cultural arbiter. Anything that George recommends suddenly becomes popular for other people on the internet. He, I'm sure you're probably aware because he doesn't hide it, uh, he is gay and so a lot of the things that he posts about are equality related issues and things like that. But at, at its core, he loves funny things. He loves things that make people smile and laugh, and so what he, uh, 80% of the time, what he's sharing uh, in his um, internet presence is things that will bring a smile to somebody's face. Uh, he also, however, the other cause in addition to equality that he has is that he and his family were interred in a Japanese internment camp during World War II here in the U.S., uh, which he considers to be one of the most shameful um, um, examples of U.S. history, and he is an absolute activist with regards to making sure something like that never happens in this country again. He has, in fact, written, co-written a um, autobiographical Broadway show, uh, which was produced in San Diego first with him in the, as the ca um, star and a whole bunch of other um, Asian American actors, and it is now on Broadway. So George Takai has written a Broadway hit and has now starred in it on Broadway, and the plot is all about the Japanese internment camps um, and how they made a life for themselves within those and how it's a shameful hist um, shameful chapter in American history. So he goes from goofy, silly um, stuff that makes you laugh to things that are really extremely serious that he has very strong feelings about. And this book sort of captures his early years of getting onto the internet and his experiences of learning what it was all about because he had no clue and had to have friends and, and, and family explain what this internet thing was and now he's a master of it. I will look that up and tell you before we're done here. It's like a one-word title, and the soundtrack, since it is a musical, the soundtrack is actually out. I believe it has just ended a short run in one theater, but is being contracted to move to a larger, bigger theater because it was such a strong uh, a success. All right, moving on. From the sublime to the ridiculous. As I've said, one of the dangers of working in a library is having the books cross the counter in front of you. The other danger is we, we put all the new stuff out on new materials displays, like you see right behind you over there. And at Ben & Martin, we get so many culinary books that we have one particular section of our new materials display, which is all new cookbooks or food-related or dietary-related uh, books. And this one jumped out at me as I was walking by the display a few weeks ago. Um, and it was a quick read. I finished it in less than an hour because it, um, it's, it's the way it's published is um, it's not got a lot of pages, but it's it's a quirky little book, and I, I recommend it, and in fact, I recommend getting it now before it gets too much older on our shelves, and there's a reason why. This is The Essential Scratch and Sniff Guide, <laughs> Guide to Becoming a Whiskey Know-It-All by Richard Betts, and I will have to caution you, I do not drink. I do not drink whiskey. I, I have the occasional wine cooler, and that's about as, as hard liquor as I ever get. I, I appreciate the complex world 
of alcohol production and the people who like it as a gourmet as opposed to just chugging back beers on the weekend or something like that. My family has Irish Scotch background and in Estes Park every year they have a Irish Scotch Heritage Festival and as part of that in all the tents that they set up on their fairgrounds there are whiskey tasting um, stations where you can taste all these different types of whiskeys however many years it's been uh, bottled up, how many every years it was in whiskey barrels and things like that and there's a complex difference between all the different types of whiskey. Well, this book is all about what the different types of whiskeys are, how it's manufactured, uh, how it, it, every different region around the globe that makes it, because it's not just Kentucky, it's not just Scotland that make it, it's made in all the different areas around the world, and everybody's is a little different because of a lot of different um, small things that make a huge difference. As an example, whiskey EY um, is, is Kentucky. Whiskey without an E, just uh, KY, is Scott. Scotland. Uh, Scotland whiskeys tend to um, have a, a different flavor because the water that they're using as the base is the salt water from the shorelines. Uh, in, in Kentucky and many other places, it's fresh water, so that adds a little different taste to things. They filter it through peat in Scotland, so you've got a, 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 hint, a hint of peat moss in there. Uh, it's made in, in South Africa, it's made in Japan. Everybody's has a different taste. Well, the thing about this particular one is that about every other page of this book has a little icon that has a little finger pointing to something, and when you see that little icon, you can scratch. For instance, here's a page. Do you like your whiskey sweet, mild, spi- spicy, or smoky? This is the, the base grain that you can make whiskey with can vary from pl- one to another. You can make it with corn, wheat, rye, barley, and then there's a whole bunch of other things. Well, there's little scratch and sniff things here, and you can smell... <laughs> The corn. You can smell the malt barley. There are different types of wood used in the barrels to barrel it up and and store it while it's aging. And the different types of woods add different things. Some woods are smoked so that it gives you a toasty sensation to your whiskey. And some, uh, they stored vanilla in previously, and the vanilla leaks into the whiskey. This book basically is like this taste tester thing to give you an idea. And it also, even though the text is very simple and very short, you can see not large blocks of text, uh, it's very detailed in those short sections that give you a background of how they make whiskey. I, I just absolutely love this, but the reason I say get it now while it's still fresh is those scratch and sniff things over forever. years are not going to last for very long, and this book has only gone out like twice. So so if you're interested in something like that... the librarians all have it. <laughs> Uh, well, the person who had it just before me was a librarian. I, I then checked it out. It's gone out to the shelf and been checked out by one other person since then, as far as I know. Well, this there's, one's fairly fresh. It is fresh. And there's a pocket in the back with something that I found absolutely fascinating. In fact, even though you're not supposed to, I took my phone and, and snapped pictures of this. It's got a chart that allows you to say, how do you like your whiskey? Do you like it sweet? Do you like it uh, malty? Do you like it smoky? It breaks it down into a pie chart, and then it breaks it down into sub-pie charts, so you can identify, without even tasting whiskey, if you know what kinds of flavors you like, you can use this pie chart to determine, well, you're actually going to want to get Japanese whiskey. It's a flavor that's most likely going to appeal to you. So, and this spe- whiskey lover wants to know if you... Can we take these books out, Scott? This one is a library one, and yes, this one can go out. So I, gotta... I want that book. <laughs> <laughs> That's like a board book? It is a board book. Yeah. Is That's that the... kept in the juvenile section? No. <laughs> <laughs>
Help your mommy and daddy decide which whiskeys they like. Yeah. <laughs> mommy, I like the smell of corn. Can we have corn whiskey? Yes. <laughs> anyway, so uh, fascinating book, but, uh, but get it while it's fresh. And the, the, other, the other thing is, other library books that have had pockets with things, things they disappear from disappear. those pockets. So get it while it's fresh, and the thing is still in the pocket. Occasionally, if an inclusion like a CD is not essential to the understanding of the book, we'll continue to circulate a book even if a CD disappears from it. And I'm going to guess if that map were to disappear, they would continue to circulate because it's not absolutely essential, but I found it exceptionally helpful. And I, like I said at the beginning of my description of this, I don't drink, I don't drink whiskey, but this makes me want to sample it. This makes me want to track down the type that I would like and see if I would like it. I don't think I want to go out and buy a bottle, but... Whiskey oh, sauce. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Whiskey <laughs> sauce on chocolate cake. I can go for that. The, right. There's another so book out, and I don't remember if I described this at a previous talk about things, but I've used it in our, um, our staff recommendations page. The comic book history of beer. Um, it's not on your list because it just came out of my head here, but uh, there, there's a really nice book that is a graphic novel representation of the history of beer production from the earliest days when the very earliest brewers learned how to ferment things uh, to modern craft brewing. I mean, if, if you look at uh, the brewing industry in America now, uh, just within the past 10 years, the number of craft breweries, the small little local breweries, has just exploded beyond comprehension. And this cartoon history of beer was a, a fascinating exploration. Once again, I don't drink beer, but I, I loved the book because it helped me understand what the differences in all these types of things are. Um, and uh, I will admit, uh, although most things I don't drink, I will say I have fallen in love with not your dad's root beer. Uh, basically, the alcoholic root beer that's out there that tastes exactly like a regular root beer but has a little kick to it. I don't understand how they can do that, but it, it, <laughs> I'm not going to stop them. I'll just say that. So, All right. Jumping once again to yet another thing. Uh, last night's Just Desserts, where we celebrate our 100th anniversary. I think that's his name. Allegiance, yes. Allegiance is the name of the George Takei show. The one word, Allegiance. Last night's Just Desserts was our 100th meeting, and instead of everybody reading the same book and talking about it at the same meeting, the um, idea was that everybody would come to the meeting and for number 100 share a few comments about their all-time favorite mystery novel or short story collection of a mystery theme. And of the 47 people who showed up last night, uh, we had 45 people that were willing to speak. As I prepared, knowing have I, how I had set the ground rules of favorite mystery novel or favorite short story collection, I was having a hard time coming up with what I wanted to talk about. Um, I ended up talking about last night, a book that is a review compilation of other mysteries. So I cheated and basically used a book that would recommend 50 other books, essentially. However, the other one that I didn't talk about last night that was my second choice... This is a children's book, but I still recommend it if you're looking for a fun mystery. There was a series that started back in the late 60s. I was born in 63, and I started reading this series in like 71, 72 approximately. And this is what hooked me on mysteries. It, it was in the youth collection. It was called, in the early years of this series, it was called Alfred Hitchcock and the Three Investigators, in which uh, three young boys, which at that time I was right about the same age as those boys um, in the preteen years, formed a investigative agency and pro proclaimed that they would investigate any mystery. And the mysteries could range from a missing pet bird to why something had disappeared from a local museum. Uh, obviously, 
nobody's going to hire and pay the three investigators, teenage boys, to investigate a true murder mystery crime, but instead they were investigating these small neighborhood mysteries. And the, the three boys, Jupiter Jones, the, the uh, mastermind, the uh, overweight um, boy uh, who uses his brain more than his body, uh, Pete Crenshaw, the athletic one, and Bob, I can't remember the last name, but Bob, uh, who was their studious one, who worked in a library, of course, that explains why I ended up working in a library. Um, these three boys put their combined talents together to solve local mysteries in their um, Southern California community. And I will have to say uh, that this hooked me into the mystery genre. My mother then eventually started having me read uh, the Agatha Christie adult mystery novels, which is what pulled me from the youth stuff into the adult category. But uh, unlike the Hardy Boys Nancy Drew books, which I did read and I did enjoy, but they seemed really very formulaic. I mean, it was the same basic plot every single time. The three investigators' novels seemed different every time. It was like the same characters, but it wasn't like a rehash of the plot every single time. The first dozen or so books in the series featured Alfred Hitchcock as a character because the boys had struck a uh, blackmail deal with him in the very first book that um, they would do something for him and if they were successful in, in accomplishing a task for him he would serve as sort of a literary introducer of their adventures um, and so the first dozen books featured a a introduction at the beginning of the book and a final chapter at the end of the book in which these boys came to a, um, talk to Alfred Hitchcock the um, film director about the adventure that they had just had and he was impressed enough by what they did that he served as the introducer to the title. Well, Hitchcock then passed away and the people who were behind the book series had to figure out how where do we go from there. So they introduced a fake celebrity to introduce all the rest of the books. The books ended up going for 43 novels altogether. They have been translated into dozens of other languages. TV series have been created in foreign markets like Turkey featuring these three boys but in their local languages. There's never been a TV series in the U.S. of these particular books. They were extremely well written. It was not one author. Um, it, the series started by Robert Arthur, and that's who wrote this very first volume. And he wrote um, most of the first 20, but then it was passed on to other authors. And they didn't hide it. They didn't, like the Hardy Boys books are all under the name Franklin Dixon. There is no Franklin Dixon. That's a, a pen name for dozens of people who all wrote the books in the Hardy Boys. All of these yeah. books uh, were under the actual author's names, and each one has a slightly different style. So as you move from the Robert Arthur books to the other authors who wrote them, you'll notice a different change in the tone of the books, but they are still marvelous mysteries. I reread this one uh, in the last few days just before Just Desserts, um, thinking maybe I was going to talk about it again, and I breezed through it in a day. I mean, it was a simple mystery, um, and there's simple peril. The boys are always put in a dangerous situation and always get out of it, um, but it's not like it's something that's going to scare anybody. It's something that inspires curiosity in the youth that would read it. So if you as an adult would it be interested in reading it? I recommend the very first book just as a sample of the series. Um, otherwise, the library still has um, a good chunk of the 43 books that were released. So. Do you need to read them in order? There are progressions in the relationships, and there is a little bit of aging of the characters. Um, we always talk about how the Sue Grafton mystery novels do not follow real time. The events in the Sue Grafton novels, if, if one novel takes place over the course of 10 days, the next novel takes starts immediately after that, and so it's not like between two years between books that two years have happened for the characters. It's, it's like 
immediate. And so over the course of how many, what is she up to, U or V or W or something like that, uh, she's really only a, only a couple of years have actually taken place over the course of that series. Yeah. That, that's what happens with these three investigators. They start out young enough that they don't have driver's license. They're too young for that. Um, but one of their classmates who lived in another state was young enough to get a driver's license in that state. And so he, he's like their arch enemy because he can drive wherever he wants and they can't. Over the course of the 43 books, they age just enough that they now have driver's licenses and can start doing their own things, um, but they never get out of like the high school age level. All right, moving on. Let's see. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll do another fun thing. Uh, every, does everybody remember the old Sockum Popum 1960s Batman TV series? Yes. Okay, the, the goofy sensibility of it, the super seriousness of Adam Ward's, um, Adam West's, um, and Burt Ward's delivery as Batman and Robin. Well, the, the comic books have certainly been far more serious than that in, in the decades subsequent to that. However, somebody was brilliant at DC Comics and realized that there are people who actually like that sort of goofy sensibility of that particular series, and they started putting out a comic book called Batman 66 in which brand new adventures set in the 1960s are told in the style of that TV series with with Batman stopping to give these weird long essay prognostications about the ethics and morality of, of villains and stuff like that. This series of comic books has come to an end. It lasted some 60 issues. And the DC publishers have put together that the stories tended every like four to six issues of the comic book was one story compiled. At the end of an, an issue, you'd get this Batman and Robin were tied up and hanging above a pit of co crocodiles, and will Batman and Robin return yeah. next issue? And, <laughs> and and you got that kind of silly, goofy sensibilities for the villains and the, and the heroes. These comic book graphic novels are the compilations of those four to six part stories. If you liked that style of Batman storytelling, you will absolutely love these things. Somebody, somebody, the, the writers and, and artists of this, now the art is not the world's best, but it also captures the look of that series. Somebody had some really good sensibilities of how to write in that style. The one that I reviewed for our staff recommendations page specifically is a crossover with another series of a very similar nature at the same time, The Green Hornet, which was produced by basically the same people and had much of the same tone as the Batman series, and they did actually do a six-part storyline in the comic book of Batman 66 meets the Green Hornet, in which those two teams of superheroes, and keep in mind, Green Hornet and Kato were supposed to be villains in the eyes of the world. They were doing good things, but they were sought by the law, just like Batman and Robin were vigilantes who, initially, the law didn't want them to do what they did, and then ultimately they became sort of employees of the police. In this particular case, Batman and Robin think the Green Hornet and Kato are bad guys and initially have to fight them and then they discover that they have mutual uh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend and so they end up teaming up to go against bad guys in this particular comic book. If you liked Batman 19, the 1960s TV series, please try this and if you really liked uh, the goofiness of team-ups um, in other um, things, TV shows do team-ups. Right now we have the Flash crossing over with Supergirl. We have characters from the various uh, Law and Order shows crossing over with each other on their different shows and stuff like that. This crossover with the Green Hornet was just a hoot. Yeah, absolutely funny. So. You can't have this because I'm only about uh, 50 pages into it, but I am absolutely loving this book. And the reason I bought it is because this is the author. For me, 
it's Ilya Kuryakin. For people yes. who are watching contemporary television, it's Ducky on NCIS, which I don't watch. But um, David McCallum um, is a Renaissance man who does all sorts of things. He has music albums out. He's he's an actor. He's a director, and now he's a published author of a, a brand new novel called Once a Crooked Man by David McCallum. Uh, it is on your checklist here. Um, the best way I can describe this is if you've ever read the. Uh, novels of Donald Westlake, the guy who did the Dortmunder caper novels and the Parker um, thriller um, novels. This was really in that vein. I, I really can't tell you much about the plot except to say that it has started, because um, I'm very early into it, uh, with a bunch of mobsters who had hired a, or blackmailed a bookkeeper into helping them with their finances, and he's done such a marvelous job of taking all of their dirty money and investing it in clean, legal ventures that they're now making far more money off of their legal stuff than they were off of the illegal stuff, and they've decided as a family of mobsters that they are essentially going to get out of the mobster business um, and, and go completely legit. Unfortunately, they do have to clean up a couple of things like killing a couple of people that could potentially be dangerous to them if they did that. So they're going to kill these people and then they're going to go legit. Well, <laughs> a, a struggling actor happens to overhear through an open window what they're going to do and uh, basically takes it upon himself to try to save the people that they're about to go kill. And the unfortunate thing is that he has no idea how to do that, so he's this bumbling fool. These gangsters have really nasty thugs at their fingertips available for them to do their, their dirty bidding. And, and so this becomes this comical farce as this one guy is trying to save the lives of people that he, he's never met before who probably are dirty in their own rights from these bumbling mobsters at the same time. So it, it's a comic farce, and it, it is extremely well-written. So if you're at all interested in sampling uh, books by quirky people that you've seen in other medium, then Once a Crooked Band by David McCallum is something I would give a shot to. I believe the library has five or six copies of it, so it is floating around, and you can find it. Um, but this one is checked out to me at the moment. My wife talked about this, so I'll just say, I also listened to Debbie Reynolds' Make Him Laugh, her autobiography on audiobook. I really have gotten to the point that I don't listen to music anymore in my car. Um, I tend to listen to audiobooks just constantly. And uh, when I saw Debbie Reynolds, I was like, yeah, I love Debbie Reynolds. So I checked it out, I started listening to it, and I, the voice just didn't sound right. It just, and then I realized, well, she's not reading this herself. Judith Ivey, the actress, is reading this book for you, but she's trying to sound just like Debbie. <laughs> so it's, 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 it's this weird weird combination of, well, it's Debbie speaking in first-person Debbie tone, but it's not actually Debbie, it's just somebody who sounds like Debbie. So anyway, this is a lovely, lovely uh, autobiography talking about her experiences in Hollywood, and she's got a couple of previous autobiographies out, which, if you remember my wife's talk back in, what was it, November, December, um, she actually had the books on her list. It, it's kind of surprising that you'd have yet another volume from Debbie, because she talked so much in her previous books about the stories, but she keeps coming up with things that, oh, I forgot to tell you about this one. Um, so uh, it's very lighthearted, um, does not go into a lot of the darkness of, of the relationship she had with ex-husbands that messed her up, but um, it does talk about her goofy relationship with her daughter, um, Princess Leia. Um, uh, it, it's just, it's a lighthearted, fun Hollywood reminiscence. So if you like audiobooks Sharing. specifically and you like Debbie Reynolds, I would highly recommend this audiobook. It was a lot of fun to listen to. So thank you very much. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast from Lincoln City Libraries. If you would like to comment on this or any of our podcasts, you can do so by visiting our podcast page 
at lincolnlibraries.org slash podcasts, where you can also download our podcasting theme music for use as your ringtone. You can become a fan of our podcast by searching for Lincoln City Libraries Podcasts on Facebook.